So beginning this Sunday, we're going to go through a four-week series talking about biblical unity in a divided world, a series we're calling Together. Now, except for the Civil War, has our nation ever been more divided than it is right now? And this division that we sense in our culture and that we're experiencing has been building for quite a while, but we would all agree that 2020 really did accelerate the sense of division in our nation. And we have felt it personally. We've been pulled in many different directions. Of course, coming off last year, we have been divided politically, an intense presidential election, and we sense just how divided the nation is. We've been divided medically with this protracted pandemic affecting every area of our lives. With all the different opinions there, we feel pulled. We feel pulled culturally and morally as this sexual revelation continues to, revolution rather, continues to steamroll through our culture. We feel being pulled apart. And then of course, racially, racial tension higher than it has been in a long time. And it grieves us that it is so. But in the midst of all this division, here we find ourselves in a very united church. And in my heart, and I'm sure in yours too, this has been a source of great joy for me as I grieve the divisions in the larger culture, but I celebrate all this unity here in this church family. And I don't take it for granted. Many churches have struggled. These things I've mentioned that we have felt the pull of, many churches have gone into exhausting division over these matters. LifeWay back in August did a research study and interviewed a lot of pastors and they found this, the five biggest concerns pastors have right now, again, August, 2020, the number one concern pastors had at that time and probably still true now is maintaining unity in a pandemic. Here's how they write. So pastors are facing conflicting perspectives on how best to respond to the pandemic. And many are struggling to keep their dispersed church united. They go on to say this, more than a quarter of pastors say they're struggling with maintaining unity, dealing with conflict and complaints. Back in August, when this research was done, one pastor said this, I'm aware that people are growing weary of the entire pandemic. Some are scared to death while others are convinced it's a hoax. Trying to minister to both ends of the spectrum is exhausting. And I feel for those brothers pastoring in context like that. But it's not just a pandemic that can cause us to feel pulled apart. It can even be the weather. I was talking to a brother pastor in the area a couple of weeks ago. And you remember how we had three weeks of snow and ice, snow and ice, and snow and ice. And we were able to navigate that fine. And in fact, we would cancel. It seemed to be clear enough to us we could cancel on Saturday night. But there was that one Sunday, if you remember, the snow and ice came late. And I had wondered, did I make a bad decision here? Maybe it's not coming. And, and so some of the churches were waiting and they were, we're on, we're on. And then they had to close in a moment. Well, this brother was telling me that he had one of his lay leaders angered about that. This last second cancellation. And the lay leader said to him, I'm done. What do you mean? I'm done. I'm done. Meaning I'm like done with the church because you canceled at the last minute. I love this. He told me that other lay leaders, though, learning of that, and they've known each other for years, the other lay leaders came to that mad member and said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I love that, where you know each other well enough in love, you can say, what's wrong with you? And, uh, and they explained, like, this just happened, and this was the best call based on what was happening. But listen, anything can divide people. So here we are, beginning a four-week series on biblical unity, and I'm grateful to preach this message and these series of messages to a united church. 
It's wonderful. Some pastors have to teach this to a church that's already fractured and dysfunctional. We get to talk about this from a position of, okay, we've already been holding together. So what I want us to do over these next four Sundays is celebrate what God has done. Let's not take it for granted that, that there's not hostility among us, that we do love each other. But at the same time, we're celebrating what God has done. Let's renew our resolve to guard and preserve this precious quality of unity. Now, remember, we do have an enemy that wants to divide us. And it's been a tool of his from the very beginning. We go to the very first pages of the Bible and we see God creating the earth. The serpent there is in the garden and he's already trying to drive a wedge between God, the creator and the first couple. Remember that. Trying to get them to doubt the goodness of God that we just sang about. Trying to get them to doubt the truthfulness of God. Hey, God, did God really say that? He just doesn't want good things for you. And driving a wedge between the first man and woman and God himself. And Satan was successful at that. Satan then also at the same time was seeking to divide Adam from his wife Eve and begin to blame one another. We see very much in short order that two brothers, Cain and Abel, now divided from each other and Cain killing Abel. And then throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see God's chosen people often divided and dysfunctional toward each other, rebelling against leadership. It's just the theme that repeats throughout the Old Testament. Then we ask the question, what about here in the new covenant? Is there an issue of unity in the churches that we see in the new covenant? And we say very early in the churches, the, the writers of scripture having to address division in the body. So here we are, I've got us here in first Corinthians chapter one, and Paul is going to write to a church that was already divided. Catch this in the year AD 55. Satan has been doing this a long time. Now we're going to come back to verse one in a moment, but let's just jump in here at verse 10 just to see how he's addressing this issue of disunity. Verse 10, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? We just jumped in here because I want you to see, Paul was concerned about trouble in the church at Corinth. It was a church that he himself had planted. He had heard from Chloe's people there that there was quarreling, division in the church. And it was so bad that the people were rallying in the names of different Christian leaders. Some were saying, hey, I, I, I followed Paul's his emphasis and his way and others, Apollos, others, Cephas. And by the way, it's just another name for Peter and others saying, well, we're just following Christ. And it was just an embarrassing mess there in Corinth. So let's talk about these four groups, the way the Corinthians had divided themselves. And let's try to understand maybe what was going on there. First of all, there was the Paul group and we don't know exactly what they were doing, but it appears that perhaps they resulted as a faction in the church because other people were choosing other leaders. So maybe when others say, well, we, we really like Apollos' approach, or we like Peter. Uh, some might have felt loyal to Paul. Well, wait a minute. Paul started our church. God used him as the instrument. So we just feel a sense of loyalty to him. And so we're going to be a faction of the church rallying in Paul's name. And you know, churches can do that today. They can get loyal to a person. And, and maybe it's, it's other members of the church. Hey, we, we've been the longest time members. And so we just feel like we're a tighter group within the church. Or maybe somebody can feel a sense of loyalty to a former pastor, a former youth leader. Yeah, well, I remember him and I, I rally there. All that would be unhealthy. So there was a Paul group. 
Then there was an Apollos group. One scholar said it may have been this, that these members felt more intellectual than the rest of the church. Apollos was such a gifted, educated orator, faithful man of God, and he would have been maybe more impressive as a speaker than Paul himself. Paul seems to indicate that. Paul was a more of a stammering preacher, but faithful. Apollos, very eloquent and very learned. And so there might have been a group in the church going, hey, we, we really fancy Apollos' approach. We're, we're a little smarter than the rest of the congregation. And that certainly can happen today. Study is great. To know, a, to know a lot of scripture is great, but we're warned in the scripture that, that knowledge can puff up when love can build up. And so we want to be careful not to think, well, we're, we're the intellectual elite of the church. That, again, a faction. So there was the Paul group, the Apollos group. Then there's the Cephas group. And perhaps these, this would have been a group of some of the Jewish Christians in the church who who liked Peter's approach, where Peter maybe uh, was, there was more of a Jewish feel to his expression of Christianity. Again, all these on the same team, emphasizing the same gospel, but perhaps there was something there. For some reason, some were rallying in his name. And then there was the Christ group. And when we read, we go, well, that's my group because I follow Christ. But it's possible that this wasn't a good group either. Paul seems to be calling them out as well here. And so these could have been people who are thinking, you know, we don't really need any human leaders. We just go straight to Christ and we don't need leaders. And this would have been a tough group to lead, thinking of themselves as super pious and, and really blind maybe to an unhealthy sense of pride. But whatever the case, they're calling themselves by different names and they're not united together as a church there in Corinth. And I want you to notice this, Paul is alarmed by it. And he's not even flattered that at least some of them are rallying in his name. He's not flattered at all. Notice what he says again. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's rebuking the crowd that was rallying in his name. Hey, don't, don't do that. So something was wrong in Corinth. And so Paul here calls for unity. So now we'll jump to the beginning of this letter. And I want you to hear. So you know the context by verse 10 and following. Now notice how he just sets the foundation. Why that church and why every church ought to be United, And we're going to see this first of all. The basis of our unity is our identity in Christ. The basis of our unity is our identity in Christ. You're going to see this as we take on these 10 verses. You're going to see Paul bring up Jesus' name 10 times in 10 verses. You're going to hear the redundancy and understand the Holy Spirit intentionally calls Paul to be very redundant because this is the source of our unity. Let's look at it together. Verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle, here it is, of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, <clears throat> to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here it is. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same spirit. Did you see the foundation Paul put in here? 
Before he ever gets to the call to unity, he just lays it on deep. It's Jesus, 10 times, it's Jesus. You're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how critical that is? A church is to be all about Jesus. A Christian is to be all about Jesus. This is the greatest thing about you is Jesus if you have believed in him. If you have trusted Jesus, this is your fundamental identity. When you think, who am I? You should go straight to Jesus. My life doesn't make sense if I don't point directly to Jesus. Now, we all hear voices telling us that there's something else that should be your fundamental identity. And all these are false. Some are telling us in our culture that your fundamental identity is your race. So you're white or you're African-American or you're Asian or you're Hispanic. That's who you ultimately are. And we say, no, that's, in, that's important. God made all this diversity of races and ethnicities. That's it's a good thing. But that's not who you ultimately are. If you know Jesus, you go first to Jesus. Others are telling you it's your gender. You're male or female or goodness, in these days, all kinds of new genders, then people are proudly throwing these labels on themselves. But listen, no, if you are in Christ, you are male or female, but that's not ultimately who you are. You, you are in Christ. Others are telling you that you are your sexual desires. So how, how are you attracted? And you, you name yourself that, but no, no, that's how you're tempted, perhaps. We, we have all kinds of inclinations. And so you, you shouldn't name yourself by, by some temptation that you're facing, you, you do know that there are certain desires you have that you have to say no to. That's not me. I'm facing that very real temptation, but I'm turning away to that to follow Christ. Others are telling you that you are your political party, that you are a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're an independent, you're a libertarian. That's, that's who you fundamentally are, not for the Christian. It's not who you fundamentally are. No, if you're in Christ, your primary identity is in him. You are who Jesus says you are, not who you say you are and not who other people tell you you should say you are. You have a brand new identity if you've turned from your sins and you've experienced the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. And so what we're seeing here is we all have all kinds of potential differences that could lead to division, but not in Christ. We have a basis for our unity bigger than all that. It's Jesus himself. Now, I love how Paul understood that. It shows up everywhere. But in Galatians 2.20, famously, Paul just gave this great expression of himself that you and I should embrace for ourselves. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's your identity right there. I don't even live anymore. Do you have that understanding? The old me, he's dead and crucified. I've been raised up in Christ. Christ now is living his life through me. So you see how this, from this posture, very difficult to argue with other Christians in a local church when everybody has the mentality, the old me doesn't even live anymore. My whole life is about Jesus and your whole life's about Jesus. All right, here we know. We know the direction that we are, we are going here. Well, what else do we see here? We're talking about our identity in Christ, our fundamentally understanding of ourselves is our identity in Christ. Paul also tells us here, we are the church of God. Did you see it? Verse two, he's talking to the church at Corinth. They are the church of God in Corinth. Let's talk for a moment. What is this church that we're to stay unified in? Well, the Greek word is ekklesia. It literally just means assembly or gathering. It was a secular term first. 
that, that whenever Roman citizens would get together or others would get together, just, this, is, this is an ecclesia, this is an assembly. But this is the word that Jesus picked up and used for his people when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that word ecclesia is what the Christians called their gatherings, different from the synagogues and other things. We, we are ecclesia, we are God's people together. And this word church in the Bible can speak of the universal body of Christ where everybody's come to Jesus, but very frequently it refers to individual local churches like this one. In fact, we see that throughout. So even in the book of Revelation to those seven churches, we have Jesus writing to them, Laodicea, Pergamum, and, and Tyre, Tyre, these places. We, we see the epistles being written by Paul and others to these churches or to church leaders. And so it is here when we see this letter to the Corinthians. There was a church, a local church in Corinth. Now, again, let's pause here a second. What is a church? What is it? It's not just people getting together who are Christians, but a church is this. It's a group of baptized believers in Jesus, who have committed to Christ and to each other to worship together, to study the scriptures together, to fellowship and care for one another, to carry out the ordinance of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and to make disciples. This is what a church is. Now notice this, that's what a church is, but whose church is it? Notice the wording here, I love it. Paul describes them as the church of God. And this is how Jesus taught, I will build my church. It belongs to him. And Paul understood that. So, hey, you, you in Corinth, you are the church of God in Corinth. You don't belong to yourselves. You belong to somebody else. And so as a pastor, I've never lost that perspective that as a pastor of this church, this isn't my church. Now I can speak about my church like I hope you speak of my church. When you say, I belong there. In fact, by the way, guests, we want you to belong here. Or you can say, this is my church in the sense of this is my family. These are my, these are my brothers and sisters. They love me and I love them. So I hope you use the phrase my church in that. But in my life, I never use it in the possessive sense because the role I have, the, the word pastor just means shepherd and I'm shepherding somebody else's sheep. I know you don't belong to me. You belong to him. And what an awesome responsibility to be a steward and a caretaker of God's sheep. And that's how we relate to each other. You and I belong to him. And so this is an essential part of our unity, how we relate to each other when we understand we're all his. This, this church that's on Staples Mill Road is a church of God. It belongs to him. And so this removes any pride from us in our interactions. No, no, long, no matter how long we've been members, it doesn't give us more of a possessiveness to the church. Nope, just, we've just been able to be on this journey longer here. But it's his and it also removes any power plays or desires to control it for some other purpose. So we have no agenda as a church, but our Lord's agenda, because it all belongs to him. So I love this, when we're welcoming new members into the church, I love hearing our new members when they come to their first business meeting here at Staples Mill. And uh, they'll, they'll say some of the same things and I never get tired of hearing it. So they'll say things like this, wow, that business meeting, that was so sweet. Or that business meeting, that was so calm. I love this one. That business meeting, it was so fast. Because <laughs> you don't have people fighting over dumb things in these business meetings. Listen, let, me, let me hasten to say this. It's okay to disagree. We're brothers and sisters and we might see that's okay to disagree. It's okay, it's okay to ask questions. We, we welcome that. But to be hostile, we don't welcome that. To be unkind and unchristlike, we just don't welcome it. I, th I think the Lord, we just don't see that 
And so we take it for granted if you've been here a while, but just remember, you're, the new members are going, this is different perhaps from where they came from. And so we celebrate this unity. We're not proud and arrogant about it. We know God has done it. We, again, we're celebrating while, while pledging anew to preserve it and safeguard that for the sake of others. So, so Paul here is just talking about, hey, you shouldn't be divided in Corinth. What is all this? I'm a Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. What is all that? You can't do that because you're the church of God. You're all in Christ. And I love this verse two again. You're sanctified in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? You've been set apart from the world, the world you used to live in and act like. You've been, you've been separated, you've been sanctified to Christ. You're holy to him. In fact, that's what he says next, verse two. You are called to be saints. Did you know that about yourself? If you are one who has turned from your sins and you've put your humble faith in Jesus, he has made you a saint. That's what the Bible says of you. It means you've been made holy. It doesn't mean that you've performed your life so well that you've made yourself holy. That's not Christianity. We are the recipients of cleansing when we trust in Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. When you trust Jesus, you are declared righteous in the sight of God by the work of Jesus. His blood makes you righteous and he declares you holy. You are a saint, which means holy one. This is amazing what God has done. So this is the basis for our unity. As different as we may be, we are one in Christ. This is it. So now we ask the question, all right, I understand my identity. It's all about Jesus and the church is all about him. So how then do we maintain this unity in a broken, divided world? So let's just apply that real quickly. First of all, fix your mind on your savior and what he's done for you. If you're gonna be one of those who preserves and enhances the unity of the church for the years to come till Jesus comes, keep your eyes on Jesus. Again, notice Paul's appeal to Jesus as the basis of this unity. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, here it is, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree. Do you see it? It's Jesus, and because we're in Jesus, he's the Lord, then we should be agreeing with each other. And he just celebrates it. Verse four, the grace of God was given to you in Christ Jesus. We're recipients of amazing grace. Verse five, in every way you were enriched in Christ. Verse seven, because of that, you're not lacking any spiritual gift. So all this that Jesus has loaded us up, this enables us to keep our eyes on him and love each other. Secondly, we're told here, practically agree. Know who you are in Christ, it's all Christ. Now make sure that you agree. See it in verse 10 again. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you and that you be, that you, but that you are united in the same mind and the same judgment. So as a church, we have one shared basis for truth. We have a real advantage here that we, we can begin to agree and have the same mind, same judgment, because we have this one source of truth that we all agree, all right, this is God's word. We believe that what the Bible describes as truth and right and good, that that is the standard of truth, and we all rally to it. Now, this is why our culture is having a really difficult time right now, because there is no basis of truth in our culture. This culture cannot agree on what is good and what is evil. And, and in fact, the viewpoint of the scripture, as you can see, increasingly not welcome in the conversation. And nevertheless, it's true. And nevertheless, we hold right here. This is why we say that we are rooted in the truth while reaching in love. I mean, we, we love our neighbors, those who think completely opposite of us. We love them and we want to take the gospel to them. But we're from a, from a position of, but here's who we are. We're rooted in the truth. We're rooted in Christ himself who said he is the truth. 
and we're rooted in the truth of God's word, joyfully so, and we want everybody to have this. Now listen, that unifies us, but there are churches who try to get unity without talking a lot about truth. Chuck Lawless, a seminary, seminary professor and also a church consultant, he wrote recently about visiting a church in a consultation type of role, and one of the leaders said this, we don't talk much about theology because we don't want to be divisive. Well, what is that then? What is your church if you don't talk about theology? So that's just a gathering of a lot of emotion, I suppose. Love the music. We just get a good feeling. Church kind of acts like an amoeba, a little blob of emotion and hype. And yet, yet the Bible teaches us a lot about truth. And so we're not ignoring truth. We, we rally to it. Our identity is in Christ and we're so grateful for the scriptures and we have confidence in the Bible together. This is good for us. So, so we agree to agree with the word of God. It doesn't mean we agree with each other's opinion all the time, but we agree to agree that God's word in the Bible is God's word and we will follow it. We'll align our church with the truth of the scripture. This is a key mark important step of our unity. Now think about it. We celebrate a church where we are different in many ways. So we're a church full of men and women. Isn't that wonderful? We're a church of single adults and married adults. And that's wonderful. We're a church of young and old. We're a church from different regions of our own country. We have people from the Northeast and the deep South and the West. Here we are one in Christ. We have people from different races or ethnic backgrounds and even from different countries. Isn't that wonderful? And here we find ourselves loving each other one in Christ. We're a church of introverts and extroverts. We're a church of new believers and mature Christian leaders and people all in between. We're a church where, where there are public school families, private school families, and homeschool families, and we're one in Christ. Even how we eat. There are people in the church who are vegetarians and people who eat meat. It doesn't matter. These are secondary things. We're one in Christ. And so the church at Corinth had to come to this understanding what really matters. And they had many differences. So in the church at Corinth, it was wonderful. You had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And they had to learn to relate to each other. They had male and female in their church. They had Roman slaves and free people in the church. And how do you, how do you relate? You're one in Christ. They had the rich and the poor in the church. They come from various occupations. And as we see, if you were to continue reading 1 Corinthians, they had problems because they had differing spiritual gifts. And Paul had to remind them, yeah, but you're a part of the same body. Don't be divided over that. And so our aim is not uniformity as a church. It is unity. Our aim is to celebrate differences. So we want to be a multi-generational church. We want to be a multi-ethnic church, increasingly so, until Christ comes. We want to be a multicultural church until Christ comes. And so our aim is to look more and more like the description of heaven and Revelation 7 long before we get there. So the beauty of biblical unity is this, that our secondary differences don't define us. And our secondary differences don't divide us. One in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. And what a testimony to the world around us. Because they're not going to get unity right in our culture with all the differing views of what is truth and good and right. They're not going to get it together. But I pray that they can look over here at Staples Mill and churches like ours and go, what are you guys doing? Because you're full of all these differences and yet you love each other. You, you're gracious toward each other. You're unified. What is happening? And you and I have an opportunity. It's, it's Jesus. He's made us into one with all of our differences. We are one in Christ and one in the truth. How awesome is that? So 
We want to fix our eyes on Jesus. We want to agree on the truth. And then this, real quickly, we're going to resist quarreling and dividing over lesser things. That's what Paul calls out here in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Your brothers, why are you quarreling? That's what he's getting at. You shouldn't be divided. And so you and I will refuse to divide over secondary things. So all of us who have personal preferences, right? We will not divide over personal preferences because we all have them. We won't divide over personal opinion. So I think this, I think that that's secondary. What has the scripture said? That's what we're rallying to. We won't divide over pet peeves. Well, that really annoys me. There are a lot of things that may annoy us, but we are united in Christ and in his word. So we're not going to push and quarrel over these things. In fact, we're going to give grace to each other in those areas where we might be different that are on a lesser level. You know, there are even some points of theology where we would give each other grace. So, so great students of the Bible who have a high regard for scripture come to some issues, for example, like eschatology, your view of the sequence of end times events. So we all know Jesus is coming back. The Bible's clear. But in what order will some of these end times events happen? Is there grace in the church for, for people who believe the Bible and have a high re regard of scripture? Like, I think it's going to be in this sequence. Well, I, I'm thinking it's going to be in this sequence. There's grace here. We give each other grace in those type of secondary matters, but all of us are united in this high, high view of scripture and we're delighted in it. So here's the point. There are thousands of things that could divide us as a church, but as I look at Staples Mail, there are three things that should unite us. And the first one's what we've been talking about today, our shared love for Jesus. This is, this is the big one. Our shared love for Jesus is all about him. We've talked a little bit about it today, but we're gonna talk about it more next time. Also, what unites us, our shared confidence in the scripture that unites us. And then third, our shared commitment to the Great Commission. There's a bigger cause that we've been called to, and we'll talk about that one in a couple of weeks. But I want you to celebrate today this unity that we have, what God has done, what God is doing, and then this call. In light of what we've seen here, are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are you living your life that way, that it's just all about him? In fact, today, I would encourage you, fix your eyes on Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've not yet surrendered to Christ. You know about Jesus, but he's not yours and you're not his. Oh, make that different today. Respond to the grace of Jesus. Turn your life over to him. Receive that forgiveness. Let him make you holy and clean, but trust in him. What he did for you on the cross and his resurrection, ask Jesus to be your savior and your Lord. So, so do you love him? Have you trusted him? Are you devoted to him? We, we saw earlier where Jesus' name mentioned 10 times in 10 verses, but six of those times he's called the Lord, and he is. And so are you following him that way? So lift up your eyes to Jesus for salvation. Lift up your eyes to Jesus for ongoing sanctification as you follow him. And let's all lift up our eyes to Jesus as, as we want to be good stewards of this church that he's entrusted to us until he comes again. Let's pray together.